Thank you, Kelly, for leading us in those great uh, hymns of praise and acknowledging the, uh, the greatness of God and the greatness of our Savior, Christ Jesus. It's often pointed out that Daniel is one of the few books in the Old Testament that is written in more than one language. And truly it is. It's mostly in Hebrew, but in chapter 2 and verse 4, right in the middle of the verse, for some reason, the narrative shifts to Aramaic, language closely related to Hebrew, and it stays in Aramaic until the end of chapter 7, then goes back to Hebrew. There's a lot of discussion about why that is, but I don't think anybody really knows, but it does. That's simply the fact. And another peculiarity of the book is the fact that the earlier part, chapters 1 to 6, when talking about Daniel, is mostly written in the third person, talking about him with a narrator telling the story of Daniel. But beginning in chapter 7, when Daniel begins to see his visions, then he writes in the first person, and he tells in first hand about the things that have been revealed to him. So there's another kind of linguistic peculiarity there. Well, chapter 4 has its own oddity because it starts out as a letter written by Nebuchadnezzar to all nations, peoples, languages who dwell in all the earth. He writes a letter to the world. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> writes a letter to the whole world. And he continues in first person with him telling his own story until verse 19. And then at verse 19, it shifts to third person and as a narrator tells the rest of the story. And then in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar speaks in his own voice again as he tells us what he had learned from the most unusual experience that he underwent. So in this chapter, we get to hear not just about Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most significant rulers of the ancient world. We get to hear from Nebuchadnezzar. We get to hear Nebuchadnezzar speak. We get to hear Nebuchadnezzar in his own words. And what Nebuchadnezzar had to say is important to us, just like it was to him. He recognized the importance of it. That's why he writes a letter to the world to tell everybody about this. It's easy to see why Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed by what had happened to him. He had another of his nightmares. Remember that he'd had one of those in chapter 2. That one scared him. And now the great king has another one in chapter 4, and that one scares him as well. This time he brings in the magicians and the Chaldeans and the astrologers and all that group. And, but instead of challenging them to tell me the dream and the interpretation, he said, I'll tell you the dream. And you just have to tell me what the interpretation is. But they couldn't do it. And so he called in Daniel. Now, I find myself wondering, why didn't he send for Daniel in the first place after chapter 2? He'd been through this before. He knows Daniel is the one, as he puts it, in whom is the spirit of the uh, holy gods. He is the one who is inspired. He is the one who can actually tell this dream. And I just kind of wonder if that isn't still Nebuchadnezzar's old pagan heart, somehow hoping that his guys, in the name of his God, can this time tell the interpretation of the dream, and he doesn't have to fall back on Daniel's God. But anyway, he brings in Daniel. He relates the dream to him, calling him by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. And the dream was that he saw a gigantic tree, a tree that was so gigantic you could see it from anywhere in the world. And this tree had beautiful foliage, and it put forth wonderful fruit. And he says the birds of the air could nest in its 
branches and, and all the creatures of the earth ate from its fruit and the animals lived in its shade and, and it was just a, a, a beautiful scene. That part didn't frighten him, but then he said he saw what he calls a watcher. I don't know about you, but that term just kind of gives me the creeps. A watcher. <laughs> I suppose he's talking about some sort of angelic being. We do find in Judaism slightly later than this, the term watcher frequently used for an angel. But there's just something about that word watcher, isn't there? He sees a watcher and he hears this watcher uh, command that the tree be cut down and that its leaves be stripped off, and the branches all be cut off of it, and the fruit all be scattered around, and there'd be nothing left but a stump. And the stump would have a band around it made of iron and bronze, and that was to be the fate of that tree. But notice what the watcher says in the dream. The watcher says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's to a beast, and a beast's mind be given to him. It becomes obvious he's not talking about a tree. He's talking about a person. And also he says, let seven periods of time pass over him. So this dream is about somebody. This dream is about a person. And the watcher says, this is a decree of heaven to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He tells all this to Daniel and he says, all right, Daniel, now you explain it. And Daniel doesn't want to. Daniel is alarmed by the dream, by what Nebuchadnezzar tells him. He knows what it means. He knows full well, and he doesn't want to say it. He doesn't want to tell it to Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar urges him to tell what he knows. And so Daniel says, the tree, O king, is you. You're that tree. The size of the tree, the greatness of the tree, indicates the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar and of his rule. But it was a kingdom that was not going to last much longer. The watcher's words indicate that there's going to be a great downfall, a great come down for this great king. He says, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven until seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's the second time in this chapter we've heard that. We need to pay attention to it. That's the core message here. That the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar has to learn that. And Daniel says, you will live like an animal until you know that, until you learn that. And he says, that's not going to change until you know that heaven rules. In other words, it's not you in charge of the world, Nebuchadnezzar. It's God. It's not you but it's God. And then Daniel did a very bold thing. I really admire him for this in verse 37. He urged the king to repent. Now, I get the impression from all we know about Nebuchadnezzar and what we read about him in the book of Daniel, you had to be kind of careful what you said to him. And so Daniel chooses his words carefully, but he tells him in no uncertain terms, you need to break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. 
there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, if you weren't such a brutal ruler, if you weren't so oppressive, if you were a more just person, if you just broke off your sins, then maybe, maybe you could get a little more time. Maybe you could postpone what the watcher has said is going to happen to you if you would only repent of being the tyrant that you are. But he didn't. He didn't, at least not for very long. Scripture says a year later, he's walking and he's looking out over great Babylon. And from all we know about Babylon, the accounts of it from ancient writers, it must have been an amazing sight. And, and most of it was due to Nebuchadnezzar's buildings. He had built the uh, massive walls of the city. He'd built the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. He'd built palaces. He'd built all these other things. And he's walking around and he's looking out over all that. And he, he congratulates himself on being so powerful and so majestic. This is great Babylon, which I have built by my power and my majesty. And no sooner were the words out of his mouth than a voice from heaven said, that's it. Your time's up. Now you're going to eat grass like an ox and you'll, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There's that statement again three times in this chapter. Sentence has been passed. Now you will undergo what you were warned about in your dream. And immediately it happened. He grazed like an ox. He was exposed to the elements. His hair grew long. His fingernails became like claws. And he lived in the fields like an animal. And the Bible says he did that for seven periods of time. It never tells us what those periods of time were. But the fact that there were seven of them suggests to me that it must have been a fairly lengthy period of time. It wasn't a week. So for some time, he's out there living that way. Now, a lot of folks read that and say, that's just a piece of Bible mythology. That never really happened. King Nebuchadnezzar never got down on all fours and went out and ate grass and, you know, got wet and grew to look like an animal. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what's happening here is a known psychiatric disorder. It's called lycanthropy. It's rare, but it happens. People begin to think that they change into an animal. And when they think that, they begin to act like an animal. And that's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He begins to think that he is an animal, and he begins to eat like an animal and crawl on all fours like an animal, and he even grows hair uh, very, very long, and his, and his nails become long, and he looks like an animal. And this Disorder can last for just a short while, but usually it lasts a longer while. And so seven periods of time is probably quite some length of time. I don't know how long. We're never told how long that is. But finally, he got over it, not through therapy. He finally got over it because he blessed the Most High, Daniel says, and praised and honored him who lives forever and acknowledged that God alone rules over all. That's what changed things for him. And he ends his story by saying, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That's a first-person testimony spoken by someone who had learned a lesson the hard way. 
Now, all of that brings us right back to where we started the book of Daniel with God and his everlasting kingdom. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Because you see, this chapter really isn't so much about Nebuchadnezzar and his mental illness as it is about God and his greatness. That's what it's really about. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to impress everybody with in his letter. Is listen, folks, you better acknowledge the greatness of God. You'd better acknowledge who God is. You'd better humble himself, yourself before him because he can humble you. And notice the indications of this in chapter 4, that it's about God. First of all, chapter 4 begins and ends with statements about God's sovereignty. Sovereignty simply means his absolute rule and authority. But we have statements of God's sovereignty beginning and ending the chapter. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And that gets repeated again in verses 34 to 35 in a bit of an expanded form. So in verse 34 and then down in verses 30, uh, verse 3, down in verses 34 and 35. And then in verse 37, that last statement, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. But there's even more here that points to God. It's God who enables Daniel to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar himself says in verse 9, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Now some translations say, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you. But the text literally says the spirit of the holy gods in the plural. And that's more likely how a pagan king would speak. I'm not sure that Nebuchadnezzar had a theology of the Holy Spirit. He just knows that Daniel is an inspired man. He just knows that Daniel has a connection with God that nobody else has. And he says, I know that you can interpret this dream. And he recognizes that he's an inspired man and therefore nothing is too difficult for him. Why? Because nothing is too difficult for God. But then further indication that this is about God is that the lesson Nebuchadnezzar most needs to learn is about God and about his lordship. He ought to already know that, shouldn't he? After that first dream in chapter 2, you would have thought he would have learned that. After throwing Daniel in the lion's den and, and God's angel came to stop the mouths of the lions, you thought he would have learned that. After he threw Daniel's three friends into the fiery furnace and they lived from it, you would have thought he'd learned that. But he's, he's a slow learner. He may be a powerful king, but he is one slow learner. And so the lesson he has to learn is about the sovereignty of God. And what he learns is, he says, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That means that Nebuchadnezzar will rule only if God lets him and only for as long as God lets him. He is not an absolute monarch like he thinks he is. Then further... We see that this chapter is about God because notice that Nebuchadnezzar's insanity begins with a denial of God's sovereignty. When he denies the sovereignty of God and he says, this is great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, that's when he loses it. That's when he loses his mind. 
And he doesn't get it back until he confesses the sovereignty of God in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. So this chapter is not so much about Nebuchadnezzar as it is about God. We don't come away from this chapter impressed with Nebuchadnezzar, do we? We don't come away from this chapter thinking, wow, he was really some great guy to realize all that. No, we come away from this chapter thinking he was really dense. But the great and all-powerful God got through to him and was merciful to him. There are two great lessons that we need to learn, I think, from Daniel 4. Here's number one. We need to learn the lesson about God that, that Nebuchadnezzar learned. We need to learn that God rules the kingdom of men and is absolutely sovereign over, to, over this world. And we need to learn that because that is both a message of hope and a message of caution. The knowledge that God actually rules the world. It's a message of hope because it says no matter how bad things get in this world, we know that God is always in charge. And we know that he can change things faster than we can ever imagine. We get an example of that in chapter 5 that we'll talk about next week. King Belshazzar, he's riding high too. He thinks he's great. This is Nebuchadnezzar's son. He didn't learn anything from his dad's experiences he thinks he's on top of the world, and that night he dies, and his kingdom is replaced, and another empire begins overnight. Overnight. The Most High rules the affairs of men. So this is a message of hope, and I don't know about you, but I think we need that message of hope in the world we're in today, don't you? Don't you think? That with all of the stupidity being manifested by so many people who are in positions of high authority, we need the message of hope, knowing that the real ruler of the world, the real ruler of the state, the real ruler of everything else, is not some person with some title, but it is the most high God who rules the affairs of men. It is a message of hope. It is also a message of caution. A message of caution because everything in this world is strictly temporary and we dare not forget it. We dare not forget it. You and I are just as temporary as Nebuchadnezzar, maybe more so. Maybe we have less time than he did. In 1 John chapter 5, or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the Apostle John wrote this. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, it is of the world. And the world passes away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What a powerful text. All of this stuff that we see that everybody thinks is so important and that we're prone to think is so important really isn't. It's of this world. It's going to pass away. What is the only thing that's really important? Doing the will of God because it's only the one who does the will of God who will last forever. There is a word of caution here. The world passes away and the lusts of it. But there's a second great lesson in chapter 4 of Daniel, and that's a lesson about ourselves. 
and about our need to humble ourselves before God. That last part of verse 37 of Daniel 4 says this, For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says I learned from all of this. I learned about God and learned about me. I learned about the fact that he is able to humble even the greatest of kings. That's what this was all about, teaching humility to an arrogant king who didn't even know what it was. Now, one of the reasons Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what humility was is that in ancient times, humility was not regarded as a virtue. We, we assume it is now, don't we? We like for people to be humble. We think they should be humble. But in ancient times, it was not a virtue. You were only humble if somebody humbled you. In other words, they made you bow before them. So it was seen as a weakness. It was seen as a liability. And so you didn't readily humble yourself before anybody. But somebody humbled you. It's kind of like those headlines. For those of you who are sports fans... You know that so-and-so humbles so-and-so, one team humbles another. My favorite one, Texas Tech, humbles the Longhorns. Okay? You don't see that one real often, but anyway, it's a good one. But when somebody humbles, they make you humble. You don't do it voluntarily. So Nebuchadnezzar had no concept in his mind of humbling himself before God or anybody else. That's why he has to learn that. You know who made that a virtue? You know when it became a virtue? It became a virtue with Jesus of Nazareth, who humbled himself and became a man, who humbled himself and went to the cross. Even the death, uh, even death on a cross for our sins. That's when humility became a virtue. When we humble ourselves before God, we give up all pretense of our own power and wisdom. And we accept his power and wisdom as revealed in the person of his son and in his word. We admit that we are not in charge of this world. We admit that we are not in charge of our lives. We admit that we have very little control over very much except whether or not, whether or not we seek to do the will of God. Humility is a key element in repentance. It's the key element in repentance. And let me tell you, repentance is the hardest part of conversion. It's the hardest part of conversion. The hardest part of conversion is not believing in God. Most people do that really without thinking about it too much. Most people just sort of readily believe in God. Repentance is not the hard part of repentance is not believing in Jesus as God's son. We've got all kinds of evidence. We've got the testimony of scripture. We have all kinds of evidence and we know that we need redemption through his son. So that's not the hard part. And being baptized is certainly not hard, is it? That's just the culmination of the decision that we have made. But the hard part is humility. The hard part is repenting. The hard part is bringing ourselves to that point where we say, I'm not on the right path. I'm not in charge. I'm not in control. I need what Christ can give me. Or otherwise, I have no hope 
whatsoever. It's what's expressed in that great old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's humility. I don't offer God anything. I don't come to God and say, God, I think you could use me. I'm a pretty good recruit. I got a lot to offer you. I've got some wonderful abilities. No, I don't have anything. We don't have anything unless God gives it to us. And the only way that we can fully realize the life that God wants to give us, like Nebuchadnezzar, is to acknowledge God. You see, like Nebuchadnezzar, our minds cannot be whole. They cannot be whole while we're rejecting the one who made us. They just can't be. Our minds cannot be what they're intended to be as long as we're rejecting his absolute control over us, his sovereignty over our lives. As Nebuchadnezzar himself said, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. Nebuchadnezzar did not say that, but he could have. Because that's the lesson that he learned. And I want to urge you this morning to listen to Nebuchadnezzar. I want to urge you to listen to what he says. I want to urge you more than that to listen to God, to listen to his son, to listen to his word, and to turn to him for the salvation and the abundant life that you need. Don't wait until he humbles you. Humble yourself. Let's stand together and sing.